Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Lost in Science Summer Series. Now, every January we take it a bit easy and we replay some of our greatest hits, our favourite stories from the previous year. In this case, the previous year was 2022, in which Lost in Science gained a new team member. Uh, while Claire, our regular Claire, was on sabbatical, Catriona Nguyen Robinson joined us. Now, Catriona is a science communicator and immunologist. She does research at the Peter Doherty Institute for Infection and Immunity. Now, Catriona recently graduated from her PhD, so big congratulations to her there. And she came on the show to tell us about her research. This is her studies into the immune system's T-cells. These are cells that normally fight invaders like bacteria and viruses and those sort of things. But she has been looking at how they can also target fats and oils. And this was inspired by some direct personal experience that she had. So look, it's a really interesting story and something that we're really grateful for her to come along and share with us. Uh, But that's not all. We do have another story that Catriona told us. Now, this is something that is not her own work, I've got to say, but she talked about some several recent studies into pharmacological waste. This is medicines and things that after we have taken them, we excrete, shall we say, and they can end up in our waterways and can potentially do some environmental damage. Now, these are medicines such as Prozac, um, the I guess the, the proper name for that is fluoxetine and estrogen. And there have been some studies into how these uh, these medicines, when they are released into the environment, the effect that they can have on other species. So look, it's quite interesting and important work into some of the, I guess, uh, unexpected effects that maybe they may come about from our modern... Um, yeah, modern use of medicine. So look, these are two medical related stories and we're really grateful, like I said, to Catriona for joining us and sharing these excellent stories. So look, stay tuned to the show and hear more from Catriona about this important research. Yes, you're listening to Lost in Science, and as I said in the introduction, we have Katrina Nguyen-Robertson joining us uh, this week, uh, and she's going to tell us a bit about her uh, recently submitted PhD research in the field of immunology. I'm sure there's a lot more detail. Uh, what exactly have you been working on, Katrina? Well, I study a special group of immune cells called T-cells, and I'm not sure how familiar you are with T-cells, given that our immune systems have really been in the spotlight lately. Um, But they're one of the main drivers of defense against infection, and they kind of act like security guards patrolling the body to determine whether the molecules within your cells are self or not self. And if they see something that's not self, like 
oh, an invading bacteria or virus, then they become activated and they sound the alarm for the rest of the immune system. So they kind of have two roles. Right. Are they um, are they white blood cells? Is that? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Cool. So a, a special type of immune cell or white blood cell that can either orchestrate the whole immune response. So they're kind of like the, the heroes that have a whole range of superpowers and, and sort of control everything. Um, or they can also be killers and they'll just go in and they see, oh, something's infected. I'll kill it. And that kind of is like quarantine, except more extreme quarantine, I guess. If you kill an infected cell, the infection can't spread. Right. Yeah, we haven't got quite that far with quarantine <laughs> measures, I think. No, no, thankfully not. We heard a bit about, I think, T cells, I think, in the in the, their pandemic, their recent pandemic, which people keep telling us is over, but some of us no. aren't convinced. <laughs> no. Um, so they, like, are they involved with the antibodies that build up after, say, a vaccine, or are they kind of the first level of attack uh, in the process? That's that's a good question in that, you know what, you wouldn't have antibodies if it weren't for T-cells. <laughs> uh-huh. So T-cells are just super special. Um, but, but you're right in that there are, I guess, layers of defense. So you do have kind of innate, we call it innate immune responses that they're not very specific, but they're just there to, to fight against anything and everything. Um, they're very fast acting, but the innate immune system or that first innate response things like mucus that you have in in your nose to trap things or or skin that really is just a barrier against anything that's trying to invade um they're not specific but they they aren't the best um so that's why we have things like t cells and antibodies that that you mentioned that are a little bit more specific so you'd have antibodies that bind a particular bit of a virus like the SARS-CoV-2 virus um, or you'd have T cells that recognize a specific part again of a very specific virus or bacterium. Okay. And so what was your research uh, or what is your research <laughs> to do with T cells? What are you studying? So most T cells, they recognize peptides, which are essentially broken down proteins. So whether that's proteins that come from a virus or proteins that come from yourself because we're constantly making all sorts of different proteins. Um, so, so that's what most T cells recognize, but I'm a little bit of a hipster and the conventional T cells, they're a bit too mainstream for me. So I study uh, T cells that recognize oils and fat. Ah, yeah. Is that a special kind of T cell? Are they, are they distinct from the other T cells that look for peptides? Yes. Yes, they are. And, and I'm trying to work out how they look different, how they act different, um, why are they different. Uh, but they do seem to kind of bridge that, that innate response that I was talking about, which is kind of your first line of defense with the what we call adaptive immune response, which is that those antibodies and those conventional normal T cells uh, that, that recognize very, very specific things that are trying to invade. So it kind of helps crosstalk. And what I'm trying to do is, is work out how are they doing this um, and, and what sort of diseases do they play a role in and how do they work in healthy people as well. Because that's what I was going to ask is like is – are there a lot of oils and fats getting into our bodies that need to be defended against? Because, like, 
you know, we're talking about uh, COVID and SARS-CoV-2 and, you know, the vaccines, which um, I think most people are aware they target the, the proteins, the spike mm. protein on the outside of the virus. So I kind of, I think we're kind of, the idea that that, that the um, these T-cells or the white blood cells attack proteins is pretty standard, but where are these fats and oils coming from? Well, it's, it's less so for viruses and um, the, the reason that we are designing vaccines that, that fight the, the peptides and, and the sort of protein component of, of the virus is that um, usually the, the fats come from our own cells. So a virus's fats aren't really any different to ours. And so you don't really want to attack that because um, they kind of just steal from us. But um, when it comes to bacteria, it's a different story. So I'm particularly focused in the bacterium that causes tuberculosis, which before I started researching this, I, I didn't realize that it was still the top of infectious killer worldwide. Like it's not a big problem in Australia, but it's really? still a massive problem, yeah, around the world. Um, so the, the bacterium that causes tuberculosis or TB, it's covered in unique fat molecules that these T cells that I study, so these immune cells, they can recognize these fats and and target them. So currently the the tuberculosis vaccine, the BCG vaccine, which maybe you've had, maybe you haven't, you would know if you had it. Like I I had it as a child and you get this massive scar on your arm. Um, But that vaccine doesn't really work so well or protect you so well as an adult. So I'm trying to work out, could we use these T cells that I'm studying to get T cells or immune cells to like actually mount a response against the fats as well, because that's the outside oh. of the bacteria. So, so maybe we can see them first and target them first. Is the actual membrane around the the bacteria that's made of um, lipids, right? Is, yeah, is that, yeah, and and that's what they can that's what they can identify. Yes, right. So that's kind of, you know, to, to answer the question about, you know, what, what sort of fats, I guess, are trying to invade. Well, yeah, fats on the outside or, or lipids, the, the technical term, on the outside of bacteria. But, but during my PhD, I had an allergic reaction to sunscreen. And uh, as you do, as an immunologist, you do some detective work and you're like, oh, an allergy. I wonder what caused this. And um, I, I looked at the ingredients of the sunscreen that I used, compared it to all the ingredients of sunscreens that I'd previously used and not had a problem with. And turns out one of those ingredients that I never used was an oil that had the wow. right kind of shape to, to trigger the very T cells, the very immune cells that I work on. Now, is that a coincidence or did you kind of set this up or were you getting too close to the T cells perhaps? Like- <laughs> Um, totally coincidental. And it was $5 to buy a bottle of the oil from Amazon. So I bought it, whacked it in experiments and they activated the immune cells that I study. So super coincidental, but it just kicked off this whole new project. Um, I at least had some evidence that, that these, these immune cells do play a role in allergies and particularly skin allergies. So I wasn't just going from nothing, um, so they, they are responsible for part of our response to poison ivy and poison oak when you touch it and you oh, get wow. a rash. Okay. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I just I just dived into, oh, we're actually putting a whole lot of oils on our skin. So, yeah, that's that's where they're coming from too. All right, so you've studied this 
you studied this particular oil as well as the tuberculosis one. And so do you think you've confirmed that that is what caused your allergy? I can't say with 100% certainty that that's what caused my allergy, but I'm very, very careful when I handle this oil in the lab. Um, but I, I now have enough evidence that these immune cells that I study, these T cells, they can recognize um, this oil and they're, they're certainly activated in its presence. So whether or not it caused my allergy, I don't know, but it potentially does cause allergy in people. And so there could be other oils out there, I guess, that are similar kind of um, risk to allergies or to immune responses that we don't want to have an immune response to. Is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. And um, we've, we being, you know, researchers have already found at least two now um, that are found in, in shampoos, other cosmetic products. Um, so, yeah, they're certainly out there, these oils that can trigger allergies in people. Okay. And the status human then, I guess, that the, the um, other oils that might be in other sunscreens perhaps are safer or they just need to be studied a bit? I'd say they need to be studied a little bit more. Um, and it does come down to shape as well. So if you think about, um, you know, these, these immune cells, they kind of have receptors that are like hands, hands that go around sort of feeling and, and probing. Now, these hands, you know, like our hands, we can only fit our hands around certain shaped things. If, if something's too big, if it's just a weird shape, you can't fit your hand around it. And so, you know, there are only certain oils that would be the right kind of shape to, to fit into the hand of these T-cells anyway. Okay. And so does that, I guess, then give us, does that give us some good understanding of how these T-cells are working on oils and that would help us with the tuberculosis problem, this better understanding? Yeah, I guess the, the more the more we figure out about these cells, like I said, they're kind of hipster in that, you know, one, they're not like normal T cells, but also I can count maybe maybe using both hands now because it's it's gone up, but like I could count just like that there are probably under ten labs in the whole world working on these specific immune cells that I work on. So hipster in that sense too. Not many people study them. So so the more we know about them, like whether it's in the context of tuberculosis or allergy, the better we can, you know, understand and manipulate them. Excellent. They're also on the keto diet, which makes them um, hipster as well. I guess. <laughs> they wear moustaches. Yeah, that's right. That's right. They put um, butter in their coffee, that kind of thing. <laughs> so what's next then for your, for your research? Um, I, I'm looking at drugs now actually because there are medicines that, that people have allergies to and I'm looking at what sort of oils are in those medicines that that people are having an allergic reaction to so I'm, I'm actually working now with clinicians getting getting samples from doctors and and well more getting samples from from doctors patients <laughs> um, and actually looking like in skin in in the skin blisters and also blood seeing what's the difference between their immune cells like do they have more in the skin is that why they're getting a response and i guess working out why why me you know like obviously mm. not everyone gets an allergy to everything um so why would certain people be triggered and others not that's okay that's pretty good um well look it sounds like that it is pretty pretty useful research and you were into it before they were called cool, these hipster <laughs> these hipster t-cells uh, which is always something to be to be proud of well i wish you um lots of luck for this future research it sounds like there's a lot of benefit there for other people and um yeah thanks for coming on to tell us about it. i hope you stick around for a bit yeah thanks for having me I think we're lost. We're not lost. Not even any short-range radio signals yet? Except for a single. 
Very powerful. Radio emission. Of course, a transmitter of that sort isn't exactly standard equipment. The science and technology must be absolutely mind-boggling. Of course, that's, uh, it's mostly on the theoretical side. What's so far? Across Australia on the Community Radio Network, you're listening to Lost in Science. So there's an accumulation of various contaminants in our water, especially given that we have emerging contaminants like microplastics, which I think a lot of people are talking about right now. Um, but maybe one that we don't think about so much is pharmacological waste. And neither of these get filtered out by our current wastewater treatment plants because they're way, way too small. I mentioned that we can't see them. So I could easily go down a rabbit hole of all the different types of waste, but I'm, I'm mostly going to focus on pharmaceuticals and how it impacts both us and marine wildlife um, because we're literally medicating our waterways with everything that slips through. So I, I kind of alluded to before that prescription drugs can enter our water supply when patients release traces in their urine or some people even just flat out flush unused meds down the sink or the toilet. I don't mm. know why that's why you dispose of them, but people do it. <laughs> so 50 to 60% of the active ingredients of some pharmaceuticals like estrogen in the birth control pill, um, they're flushed out in our urine. So they go through oh. our bodies and then we're flushing out like 50 to 60% of them. Um, Is that like an unused portion of the, the medication? Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of like, you know, the whole vitamins thing and you're like, oh, if you take vitamin sublets when you supplements yeah. when you don't need them, it's expensive pee. <laughs> um, but the thing is, like with these pharmaceuticals, they're targeting receptors that are on our cells and, and the drugs are designed to target them. But these receptors are evolutionarily conserved among different animal groups. So the same receptors that are on the cells of you and I are also very, very similar to the receptors on like other cells in the animal kingdom, like whether it's fish or turtles or anything like that. Wow. So yeah, these medicines that are developed for us, for humans, can also have the same or a similar effect on non-target species like fish. So firstly, I wanted to mention um, the psychoactive pollutant or antidepressant Prozac. Yes. Um, fluoxetine, I think is it? Mm. Yeah, so Prozac's just the... the um, brand name but yeah yeah traces of antidepressants are turning up in tissues of insects and spiders that live near streams and the active ingredient um, has been found in water habitats all around the world including here in australia um, oh, wow. and if you think about it its purpose is to change the behavior and mood for people with depression and it kind of is doing that in wildlife too um so Professor Bob Wong, I'm not sure if you're familiar with Bob Wong, but he's at the at Monash University and looked at what the exposure of fish to Prozac specifically would do. And his team found that it disturbed their foraging behavior or their ability to escape from predators, which, you know, in this was only done in a lab. But if you think about what it might do in the wild, it would potentially affect their survival if they can't, you know, get food the same way or if they can't swim away quickly. Um, but Another big one that I've already mentioned, a, a drug that ends up in our waterways is the contraceptive pill. And the active ingredient is literally, literally like synthetic estrogen. Um, 
And this is known as an endocrine-disrupting chemical because it disrupts the delicate balance of hormones in us as well as other animals. Um, so in people, obviously, that's, that's the point. You disrupt the usually monthly hormone cycle so that um, women don't get pregnant. But, but what does it do in animals? So before answering, I kind of want to just point out that there are many types of endocrine disruptors in our waterways, and we honestly don't know what the impacts might be yet. People talk about things like um, some plastics, like the BPA. Isn't that one of the ones yeah. that people point to as an endocrine disruptor? Yeah, BPA is a massive one. So, yeah, that's in plastics and, and fertilizers and things. So, yeah, essentially they're all doing a very similar thing. They're, they're mimicking and interfering with our hormones. Um, so studies have seen abnormalities in the genitalia of both terrestrial and aquatic life due to the exposure of endocrine disruptors like the contraceptive pill and, Chris, as you said, um, BPA. Essentially feminizing male fish and even alligators, turtles, and frogs. Oh. Yeah. That's a bit – it's complicated because, like, they are talking about a lot, a lot of different kind of, I suppose, you know, families of animals. Yeah. Um, they have different kind of evolutionary histories and different kind of response to, to things. And, yeah, they're all being affected in this way. Yeah, 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 yeah. But if you – like, it must be that, you know, these receptors for the hormones are just so, so – basic in terms of evolution mm. that they're so similar across all of these different groups because yeah, yeah we're very different to fish <laughs> so that was what i was wondering like when you talked about the the prozac is mm. that you know these laboratory tests show that it could um it could have that effect but you do kind of wonder i guess well, what is the actual level yeah um that is going to be out there because surely it's dose specific but we talked about with these these ones this is actual seeing the effects on animals in the in the wild yeah yeah absolutely so over the past decade feminine or feminized male fish have been discovered in 37 different fish species in lakes wow. and rivers throughout north america europe and other parts of the world so yeah like people are actually seeing the effects and the impacts of this in the wild and that presumably will affect their reproduction and things like that yeah yeah absolutely um so, for example, um, there, there are some types of fish that, um, well, well in, actually in many species in, in, across the animal kingdom, females often choose the males to mate with. Um, but there's a, a certain type of fish species, and I can't pronounce the name, <laughs> but um, essentially they go one of two ways. Either the, the females choose who they want to mate with, and usually they do that based on color because they're like, oh, good color. Good genes. <laughs> but um, the other way is that a male can sort of um, penetrate aggressively. And so what, what scientists are seeing is that this is happening more and more. So they're going for the aggressive penetration. And so wow. females aren't choosing anymore. And that's affecting the gene pool because you're eliminating that kind of the, the choice. Yeah. Oh, geez, that's a complicated situation <laughs> yeah yeah um and so you know when, when you're getting all these fish that are being feminized like you know i'm, I'm all for feminism but not like this um <laughs> uh you're essentially you know like skewing the population and this is actually how some people are looking into biocontrol like forms of biocontrol for invasive oh, fish 
fish species. Yeah, if you if you turn them all into like one sex, they can't reproduce anymore. So I mean, obviously, that if that's like something that's actually being usurped by control, and we are doing this unintentionally, yes, yeah, then yeah. it's pretty clear that's going to be have have major problems, yeah, yeah. And I and I might add, like with the biocontrol, it's very controlled and also done in a completely different way. They're not just given drugs to <laughs> to yeah. fish. So so what like what do we know? What can be can be done about this? Because um, I mean, I'm thinking about, for instance, how things would say get into waterways here in, mm. in Australia and. Like um, pharmaceutical drugs, you would expect to go through the sewage system. Mm-hmm. Um, you're saying they pass, say they pass through our sewage treatment. They're not eliminated by those sort of plants. They go they then go out of the ocean. Is that what's happening? Yeah, I think um, now that we're more aware of it, I, I think awareness is a really good thing. Um, but because we've been aware of things like um, microplastics. For mm. so long, and PFAS, which is a really, really big one, yep. that um, the, the forever chemical that, that people mention, um, it means that scientists around the world are actually looking for solutions. Um, because once you know about the problem, you can start looking for solutions. Mm. And so, with PFAS, for example, there are definitely ways now that that people have found to break down those bonds yeah. and break down those chemicals. So hopefully now that we know that this is a problem, people, um, maybe chemists can get onto it, like to, to figure out how can they break it down so that the active ingredients are no longer floating around in the water. Um, but, yeah, there's no, I guess, easy solution to stopping drugs and chemicals from entering our waterways. It's, it's difficult to just get rid of or ban products because sometimes when we realize that, that something is a pollutant, we ban it. But, um, mm. you know, th- these are obviously very useful to us. Um, so if we take a look at the whole life cycle of these products, we can get um, pharmaceutical companies to do a bit more research into the impact of these products once we've taken them. So rather than just saying, oh, you know, we've made them, it's now on the consumer. If pharmaceutical companies kind of have a look at what happens after we take them, um, and take a little bit, a little bit more responsibility as well. I'm not saying it's just on them, but mm. um, you know, they they can certainly um, look at it. But also, you know, we can be more mindful, especially when disposing of unused medications. Like maybe, maybe it like you know was somewhat expired or whatever for for us, and we're like, oh well, we won't take that. But you know, it goes into the environment and might still have an impact. So it's, I think it's kind of got to be everyone. And that's it for another episode of Lost in Science. Lost in Science is recorded for 3CR in Melbourne on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. And it airs across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. We would love you to get in touch with us. You can email us at lostinsci at gmail.com or you can find us on Facebook where Lost in Science on 3CR or on Twitter where we're at Lost in Science 1. You can find us on your favourite podcast app where if you get the chance, please give us a good rating and review as that will raise us up in the search rankings so other people can find the science. Or you can listen to us however you listen to us now. We're at the same time every week when we all get Lost in Science.
Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.